We come to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, one of those sections of scriptures that I was uh, reading through and studying, thinking, man, this is hard, and then uh, I was comforted listening to other preachers preach through it or reading commentators and them saying the exact same thing, so uh, apparently misery loves company, so we were... In it, but I, I knew this would be a difficult section. It, I was reminded of my ordination when I uh, was sitting through ordination, and Pastor Eric can uh, attest for this because he was a young seminary student at the time and allowed to come in and sit and observe. And then under the theological section here, um, you know, Phil Johnson was quizzing me, and he came to this section and he asked, "What is original sin, and how is it passed on?" And that whole discussion started a rather long discussion that broke out into the other pastors in the room. There were three other pastors in the room along with Phil, and a debate started out, and I was rejoicing that they were debating with each other, and I tried to hide from the whole thing. <laughs> At least the attention for finally for a few minutes wasn't on me. So, um, But this morning, now the attention here is on this marvelous text where we get to look at what Paul is building on this particular case. And indeed, it is a a difficult section for many reasons. It's difficult because of some interpretive conclusions at the end of verse 12, for example, Uh, some theological viewpoints that easily could be put over the text to try to understand what is here. Even understanding the nature of original sin, what is it that is passed on, and then the implications of original sin. All right, if we are you know, corrupted in Adam, if we are guilty in Adam, what about babies who die? You have all of these implications that come out of this text that are difficult and hard. So we are going to spend some time together looking through these texts, even though I guess I was at one point tempted just to skip it and see if you'd catch it, but... Uh, I know you would. So, I mean, just think about in this few short verses from verse 12 through 21, Paul talks about the historical Adam, the origin of sin, the sinfulness of man, the greatness of Christ, the nature of death, the gift of grace, and the emptiness of law, all in 10 verses. Every one of those ideas are worthy enough of uh, a lot of time and Paul and just the economy of words enters into these great theological truths and he moves so rapidly through it, your head is spinning, uh, seeing the connections. Commentators point out in verse 12 that he starts with the phrase, just as through one, and then he doesn't give the even so or the, the other side until verses 18 and 19. He heads on to an excursus from 13 through 17 and leads us even into other ideas. And by the time you head into those other ideas, going back to his first point, we forget where he was at. So Paul, even in his own exuberance, uh, is aware of the depth of the riches of what he is presenting here. To demonstrate to you how difficult this is, I will just read it for you so you see yourself. Notice what Paul says, starting in Romans 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. 
For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How about we just pray and go home, right? So, so rich. What Paul is demonstrating here, the riches of truth. In fact, there's so much here that I've decided to help you and give you slides. So we are going to have two slides at least that will help us get through this whole section. As, as we get to them, I will explain. But there is so much that Paul is doing in this marvelous text. Now, just to give you a reference point, if at any point in time that we are getting into this text and your head is spinning with all of this information and you're wondering, all right, where do I go with all of this? Just remember this point. This whole section of Scripture is about the greatness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the greatness of his work, the person and work of Jesus Christ is the central focus of all of Romans chapter 5. It started back in verse 1. We saw that, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, it is through whom we also have obtained our introduction in which we stand. Jump down to verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, Christ died for us at the end of verse 8. Verse 9, we've been justified by his blood. And we've been saved from the wrath of God through him. Jesus is the emphasis of this entire section. In verse 10, we shall be saved by his life at the end of verse 10. In the middle of it, we were uh, reconciled to God through the death of his son. Also there, continuing on into verse 11, we, is, we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Then down in verse 15, again in the middle of it, For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And then in verse 17, again, at the end of verse 17, it's the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. This whole section is about Christ, even down to verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Over and over again, Paul keeps pointing us back to the greatness of Jesus Christ. Everything that we look at now, then from 12 through 21, it should be prepping us to receive the, an understanding of the greatness of Christ's work. When we talk about original sin, when we talk about the passing of that sin, when we talk about man's condition, it is to help us appreciate what Jesus Christ has done for us. That he is the only Savior, that he is superior to Adam, and that he is worthy of all of our devotion and adoration because of what he has accomplished. There is... No other that compares to Jesus Christ. And what's demonstrated here in Romans 5, 12 through 21, that there are two historical figures, two prominent figures in all of history that impact humanity. Adam and the second Adam. Adam and Christ. Through Adam comes corruption to, and guilt to all of humanity. Through Christ comes redemption 
comes spiritual life, comes righteousness of God, and eternal life. These two prominent figures are the central focus here, and then with the superiority of Jesus Christ being the focus. So when we're in the midst of our discussion and working through this and you're trying to figure out what's happening, just go back to this. All of this is pointing us to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the bigger outline, the first slide for us, the bigger outline for this whole section. And uh, we'll see how many weeks it takes, but here is the outline. We first see the problem with the first Adam which is the spread of sin and death. We'll see that in verse 12. Then we'll see the proof of the problem, that is the reign of sin and death from Adam until Moses. We'll see that in verses 13 and 14. Then we will see the solution, which is the second Adam and the spread of righteousness and life. You'll see that in verses 15 through 17. The proof of the solution the superiority of the second Adam, verses 18 and 19, and then the result or implication of this, a gospel of grace which is superior to the law, verses 20 and 21. That is the outline that will take us through this uh, section of Scripture here, and then that will help us break up what Paul's particular thoughts are in this. So the first one today, the problem with the first Adam the spread of sin and death. Again, notice verse 12 again. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Literally, this text reads, On account of this, on account of what Paul has been saying up to this point, particularly on account of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope of peace with God, the hope that we have that we've been reconciled to God, on account of the glorious work of Jesus Christ that has taken the sinner and brought him near to God, giving him peace with God, causing the sinner to no longer fear the wrath of God, on account of this, Paul moves into this next discussion. I suppose, in one sense, when Paul begins to take us into this discussion and he begins to show us the riches of these verses, because oftentimes this week I'm like, Paul, why are we going down this road? What are you doing here? This is it's so complex that I believe that Paul, in doing this, is demonstrating to us the riches of Christ's work on our behalf that he is showing us what Christ needed to do, what he needed to rescue us from. He's giving us a greater appreciation for this marvelous work. So on account of this redemptive work of Christ, he draws our attention to Adam. And this first point, the spread of sin and death, you might begin to ask the question, okay, I understand I've been reconciled, and I understand why I needed to be reconciled. I understand my former condition. I understand Romans 3. I mean, you've already said this, Paul, back in Romans 3, particularly verses nine or 10 through 18. You have already said there are none righteous, none who seeks after God. You've already uh, reminded us that of our condition, that we have fallen short that we have uh, constantly sinned, that everyone has transgressed. They've transgressed in their actions, in their words, in their thoughts. They have fallen short. Why pick it up again, Paul? Why go back and speak again? Did you not complete it, or what, what is going on? To say simply that we have sinned, does not fully grasp the full depth of man's fallen condition. To say simply, I'm a sinner, that's a good starting point, but there's more than that. It's more than you are a sinner. There's more that you have sinned. And Paul is going to draw out the more here. And he takes us into, again, categories and thoughts that 
we just wouldn't naturally go to. It begins to show the depths. So here's how we're going to break down this particular point. We have four subpoints here. Sin entered through the one man, and death came through the one man committing one sin, and death spread from the one man to all men, and as a result of this death, all sinned. That's our outline for this verse 12 for us, and let's just unpack it this morning. The first principle idea then, sin entered through the one man. There's nothing profound here because that's exactly what Paul says there. Just as through one man sin entered into the world. How many men did it take to mess up the whole world? The answer, one of us. Didn't take a group, it didn't take an army, it just took one man to do it. And it was Adam. By observation, just as we begin, uh, this Adam, we know Paul is referring to Adam because that's what he says down in verse 14, death reigned from Adam until Moses. This one man that he has in his mind is Adam. And by implication, as we start, it's healthy for us to point out here that Paul is viewing Adam as a historical figure. He's not viewing Adam as some uh, mythology. He's not viewing Adam as some narrative, but as a historical figure who actually lived and dwelt on earth. Listen, friends, if you are fearful of the liberal gospel and are tempted to embrace the mythological account, you, in taking that, undermine the credibility of the very gospel you preach and believe Here Paul begins his theological argument on the historical Adam. But more than that, what Paul begins to demonstrate here is that this Adam was given a particular responsibility. That this Adam was given a particular place, a particular privileged spot whereby he made others culpable and guilty. He had a particular role particular responsibility that was emphasized. How do I know that? Well, you remember the Genesis account, Genesis chapter 3. Who first sinned? Obviously, the answer was Eve. She partook of the tree first and gave it to Adam. And yet it was through, Paul points out here, it is through the one man sin entered the world. He pointed to Adam's transgression. This is consistent with Paul's writings. Turn over to 1 Timothy 2. I mean, we just pick one controversial text with another one. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, when Paul speaking about orderliness in the church and how a church is to operate, and he speaks and he gives here in 1 Timothy 2 some instruction to women how they are to adorn themselves within the church. And how they are, he goes on and describes how, how they are to dress, how they are to receive instruction, verse 11. Then he says in verse 12 there, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Then verse 13, he gives a why. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So first he gives a priority of order in creation and draws the implications there. But now notice verse 14, the implications even in their transgressions. And it was, not, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. There is something about Eve's sin that was different than Adam's. One, the order of creation difference, but two, it was Eve who was deceived, but it was Adam who went into this willfully, willfully transgressed. So that there is a distinction, there's a significance in Adam that Paul keeps pointing to. Now turn back to Romans 5, and one more detail I want to point out before we dive into this. What this passage clearly emphasizes is the representative nature of Adam towards humanity. Notice again how Paul continues to bring this out here. In In verse 12, just as through one man sin entered the world. So this one brought in sin. Down in verse 15, he brings it out again. 
For if by the transgression of the one, the many died. Verse 15. Verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. Verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. And then in verse 19, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Paul regularly brought out in these verses the representation of the one. There is one who brought sin in this world. This one transgression. There's one who sinned. This transgression of the one brought death. Many were made sinners because of the one man's disobedience, verse 19. This is where theologians would identify as federal headship. One acting as a legal or federal head, a legal representative that then brought consequences under, upon all those who come under that one. Obviously, this very idea, federal headship, causes the heart to swell up and say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that one would act in such a way to cause me to have to bear consequences of his actions. Well, that same federal concept of not fair, it's not fair that we would be condemned in Adam. It's certainly not fair that we would be redeemed in Christ or received in Christ. This isn't a matter of fairness, per se. But I also want to demonstrate to you that this idea of a federal representation, a federal head, is consistent with all of life. You go out and you vote for politicians. And those politicians go out and make decisions that bind you. They make choices. They enact policies. They do things that bind us, that ultimately impact our livelihood for better or for worse. Anytime you doubt the choices of politicians, just go look at the gas pumps and you see choices made that cause to move up and down. So we have in politics this idea of a representative head where one is voted on, goes out, and makes decisions that impact you. The same idea is true in business. You have bosses, presidents, CEOs, others who make decisions that affect the livelihood of everyone who works at that place. They decide to get what business to get into, what business to get out of. They make decisions that have an impact on everyone who's a part of it. This is a representative head. Same thing happens in the context of family. Father makes a decision, decides where to move, where to work, etc., that has an impact on all of the, rest, of the rest of the family members. This is normal in life. And this is the idea that Paul draws out here. Through the one man, it is one man who brought sin into this world. This one, acting as a representative, brought unto all sin. He acted and influence the rest of us for all of eternity. And we know this inherently because every one of us privately is like, when I see Adam, I'm going to thank him. Some, Some of us more sarcastically than others. But we recognize that Adam has passed on to us something that has influenced our entire lives from the very beginning. There is a relationship to Adam, a representative relationship that is also, as we're going to ultimately see in the text, parallel to the relationship we have in Christ, a representative relationship. Through the one man came transgression. Through the other man came righteousness and life. It's a representative. But there's more. It's not just that this one man came representing all and this one man brought sin into this world, the sin which we are a partaker of. More has come to us. And that is what Paul brings out here and this moves us to our second point. Death came through the one man committing one sin. 12b says that. Sin through the one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. Death entered into this world through sin, particularly the sin of the one man, Adam. 
Without Adam transgressing, there was no death. With Adam's transgression brought death. Death entered the world. Now let me ask you a question, kind of a theological question. Who is the first person to die in the scriptures? You could say, well, it was Abel. Abel was the first one to die. Cain killed him, Genesis chapter 4. But I'm going to suggest to you the first person to die was Adam. Could even argue Eve, but I'm going to argue Adam at this point. Adam and Eve, Adam was the first to die. What do I mean by that? Well, it's this. When the Bible speaks of death, it speaks of death in three categories. The one we're most familiar with is that of physical death. We, we physically die. When the soul is separated from the body, the, f- the flesh is no longer animated, no longer has life, the heart is no longer beating, there's no longer any action or response, the brain is no longer functioning, the organs have shut down, we understand physical death, we go to funerals. That is what we're most familiar with, the physical death. Lungs are no longer breathing. We know that the soul has been separated from the body. They are dead. But the Bible also speaks of a spiritual death. Not just a physical death, but a spiritual death. There is a common passage and an uncommon passage. First, the common passage. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Speaking of this, this spiritual death. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, speaking of spiritual death, he says, and, and he's speaking to believers here, those who have embraced the gospel, and it says of them, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then notice verse 2, in which you formerly walked. So he's describing a state of spiritual deadness in which we were conducting ourselves. A walk is to be the habit of one's life, the conduct of them. You walked in deadness. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you were walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This was our former condition in which we walked in. We walked in a state of spiritual deadness. Let me show you another passage. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, probably an uncommon passage that you would look to to draw out this idea, but it's very clear that Paul draws it out here. 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul is talking to Timothy about how to treat widows in the church and how to identify true widows, widows indeed, and those who aren't. And he gives some qualities and, and Description, we'll just start in verse 3. It says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. So you identify the widow and how she's to be cared for and you identify the one who is the widow indeed, who is righteous and who the church should care for. And then it says in verse 6, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure, notice, is dead, in that last phrase, even while she lives. What is the description there? This is the description of spiritual death. One who is given over to wanton pleasures, the one who is controlled by these pleasures is dead even though they live. This is the description of spiritual death. Describes a person in the state of being dead to the things of God, powerless to resist evil, cold and indifferent to the things of God. When we speak of, of spiritual death, we speak of somebody who is corrupted in their mind, in their will, in their heart, in their affections. Their entire inner being is bent towards death. 
It's moved away from God. Their thinking is corrupted. Their desires are corrupted, so they no longer desire the things that are right. They are, their heart is delighting in evil. Their affections are longing for that which is ungodly. That is the state of spiritual death. It's described in verse 6 that she is giving herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. There is a spiritual death that ultimately will lead to the physical death. The last death, of course, the Bible speaks of is over in Revelation. If you want to turn over to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 11, there's multiple places in Revelation that this is brought out. But the first is in Revelation 2 and verse 11. And it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, notice, will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 and 14, 21, verse 8, all refers to this second death. The second death is that death which comes when one has been resurrected, stands before the judgment of God outside of Jesus Christ. They are condemned for their transgressions and they are cast into eternal condemnation. That is the second death. So these are the three Descriptions of death in the scriptures. Physical death, like Lazarus who died and was in the grave. Spiritual death, like those who are bent against God while they live. They are, they are corrupted in their heart, mind, and will. And second death, those who are condemned in all eternity. So the question is, back to Romans 5, what is Paul referring to here in Romans 5? What kind of death? as he referred to. Suspect that Paul is referring both to the physical and spiritual death. But particularly, I would make the case, and we'll demonstrate here, particularly the emphasis is going to be on spiritual death. It's a spiritual death that ultimately will lead to physical death. This is the death that has come from sin. This is the second death, and this is what Paul draws out. Now, let me just show you this. Let's just start our journey in Genesis. Turn over to Genesis chapter 2, and let me build this case that Paul would be referencing spiritual death first, which would then lead ultimately to a physical death. You remember Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, the command that God had given to Adam when he placed Adam in the garden and gave all the trees of the garden to Adam to eat, except from the tree, verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, notice, you will surely die. Notice again the wording there, in the day you eat, you will die. It's not in a few weeks, a few years, a long time afterwards you're going to die. It's in the very moment, in the very day you partake of this tree, you will die. And indeed he died. Indeed, at the very moment, in the very moment he partook of that tree, at the very moment he partook of it, he immediately died. He experienced spiritual death. We see that over in chapter 3. Notice Genesis 3. This comes out where Adam died. Remember the whole account with the serpent coming to Adam and, and coming to Eve particularly and tempting Eve and Eve taking of it. Eve in verse 6 saw that the fruit was good and she saw that all that was being promised her looked desirable and so she says in verse 6, she ate from it. And then at the end of verse 6, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now notice the corruption that immediately sprung forth. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. So first of all, you had their mind and understanding corrupted. Then it moved immediately to their actions. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. 
Now their will is corrupted. Notice verse 8. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They who used to come out freely walking in the presence of God are now hidden. Their wills are affected. Their mind is affected. Even their affections are corrupted. Verse 9 says that the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of, I heard the sound of you in the garden. Notice, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. The very affections of man was no longer love towards God. There was fear in God. Immediately, from the moment he partook of the tree, immediately he experienced a spiritual death that separated him from God, that caused corruption of his will, of his mind, of his affections, and even his own heart. Notice down in verse uh, 11 and 12, God responded, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man's response should have been, You're right, yes, I did. How did you know? No, his response was, The woman which you gave to me, Gave me of the tree and I ate. The heart is corrupted. Again, immediately upon taking of the fruit, Adam experienced spiritual death. He died when he sinned. Spiritual death that affected his will, his mind, his affections, and his own heart, corrupting him. Which ultimately then led to his physical death. Keep your finger here in Roman, in Genesis 3. Turn back to Romans 4 and notice, or Romans 5, sorry. In Romans 5, come to the next point. This death spread to all men. Adam is not the first person to experience death. Notice as verse 12 says, okay, so sin entered in the world and death through sin. And then this phrase, and so death spread to all men. Death didn't just stay with Adam. It spread to all of his progeny and everyone after. Adam is not the first person to experience death. This is where we turn back to Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 4. Adam experienced death. His wife experienced death. His kids died. Their kids died. Everyone died up until Moses. Abraham died and Isaac died. Jacob died. In fact, Exodus 1.6 starts with, and Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all, that, and all that generation. Death spread. Obviously, the physical death. But more than the physical death spread, also we see in Genesis 4, the spreading of spiritual death. Notice Genesis 4 and the account. You, you remember the account starts there, verse 1. And the man had relations with his wife, Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought his offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Notice, again, here is God coming to Cain, warning Cain of his own heart's tendency to be angry. Angry because God hadn't received his, his offering. Angry at his brother Abel, and God is warning him of what is happening. Verse 8, Cain told Abel his brother, 
And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Notice the response. Notice the corruption in Cain. The Lord said to Cain, verse 9, Where is your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Here is, again, Cain's lying. The demonstration of the corruption of his very being. He is rejecting God's counsel, rejecting God's warning, bent against God's ways, and then even acted on it. And when God confronts him, he lies back. This is the state of being spiritually dead. He's dead. He had transgressed the thing of God, things of God. He's in a state of spiritual death that ultimately led to his physical death later. And he did fear physical death. He feared God's judgment as God sent him out, that he would not be protected. There is a state of spiritual death. This death is what was passed on to all from Adam. Now we can turn back to Romans chapter 5. Death spread to all. Adam sinned. From that sin came death. And that death spread to all, just as it spread to Cain and Abel. Spread particularly as Cain demonstrated that spiritual death, that he was corrupted. He killed his brother Abel. And now we come to the last clause in all of this. As a result of this death, all sin. And now we come to the most hotly contested of the points. What does it mean, because all sinned? What do you mean that Adam's sin passed on death because all sinned? Grammatically, there's a causation here. That's why the text says, because all sinned. It's understanding that causation that causes all the confusion. Do I mean by this, because all sin means that we all sinned like Adam? Adam it was our example, and by his example, we all sinned? Or does it mean that we, in cooperation with Adam, that we were right there with him, physically connected to him, that we cooperated in the sin? Or does it mean that his sin is simply credited to us? So it is because all sin, we are all credited with that same sin. What is this text trying to emphasize? And again... All of those ideas have been presented. They've been presented in this way. There's the example theory. The example theory is that by Pelagius that says Adam was a kind of example for us. That we looked at Adam's example and all of humanity's example and we who came into this world are morally neutral and we just see the bad examples around us and that bad example causes us to do what we do. Or, there's the inherited corruption theory. This is the view that Adam sinned, was corrupted, and he passed on a physical corruption from one to the other on down the line. Then there is the seminal headship view, and this is one of the prominent views in evangelicalism. The seminal headship view says that we were actually there physically in Adam, acting with Adam. So that as one physically was there, present, acting. This view again has problems because we're not physically connected to Adam. It destroys the parallelism between Adam and Christ. The other is the federal headship view. Okay, Adam acted on our behalf and we're just credited with his actions. None of these views fully describe what is going on here. Parts of it do, but none of them fully describe Let me just show you what's fully described in this text and what it's ultimately describing here in Romans 5, 12 through 21. Paul is describing that here's what original sin is. It is original guilt and original corruption. Original guilt and original corruption. The emphasis of verse 12 is on our corruption. We have received corruption from Adam. Let me just show you this from the language. 
That phrase, because all sinned, is actually uh, two words there that means upon which, upon which all sin. This is a subordinate idea, literally, Paul is saying this. Because one man sinned, sin caused death, that death spread to all, upon which we sin. That's the argument that Paul is making here. Because of Adam and his transgression, he brought in death. That death, that spiritual death spread from Adam to all of us, and we received an original corruption, a spiritual death by which we then sin. Why do you sin? Why does anyone sin? We sin because of original corruption. Why does the believer continue to sin? We'll answer that more in chapters uh, 6 and following, but because we have the remaining effects of sin. Originally, as an unbeliever, we sinned because we were dead in our nature. We were dead, spiritually dead. Adam passed on this death, so we sinned. The emphasis of that is in that phrase, all sinned. And the word there is an aorist tense. We would take it as a constantive aorist, meaning every individual actively sinned. They historically sinned continually. Each time this word is used in Paul's writing, it refers to the individual's sin. I'll show you this. Turn over to chapter 2 of, uh, of Romans, chapter 2 and verse 12. This Constative aorist is used twice in verse 12. It says, again, For all who have sinned without the law, that word, that phrase there, who have sinned, is this same aorist word, they perished without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Meaning every individual who practices sin is judged. Whether you're under the law or outside of the law, if you practice sin, you are judged by that. The practice of sin. It's in each individual. He does the same thing in chapter 3 and verse 23. This constative aorist there says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Have sinned there is our same word, speaking of the individual's actions. Point is, what Paul is doing here in Romans 5 and verse 12 is demonstrating for us the effects of Adam's transgression. He passed corruption onto us. How do you know that you are corrupted from Adam? You sinned. You sinned. You have sinned. Demonstrates that you were under Adam. That's a rather hopeless spot to be in. Not as just the matter that I was actually transgress, but because of this relationship to Adam, this position I have in Adam, I am both guilty by being associated to Adam and I'm also corrupted by being in Adam. I have a guilt problem because being associated to Adam and I have a corruption problem. And in comes the gospel of God. The gospel which says that through Jesus Christ, we can be saved from the wrath of God. Through the second Adam, we can be delivered from the consequences of being in the first Adam. We are no longer under the guilt problem because we are credited with the righteousness of God. But also, more than that, And the second Adam comes the redemption from the corruption problem. We are given a new life. By the way, that's what Paul gets at in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And then he goes on and talks about the newness of life. And this way he's going to talk about salvation and regeneration. We've got a new nature. Before those, those who are outside of Christ, they are both under the guilt of being in Adam and they're under the corruption of that spiritual death that they have received from Adam. Because this death has spread to all. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, comes and is a superior gospel that rescues us from man's entire condition. 
He is, we are, again, going to see this superior Adam as we continue through this marvelous section. But for us this morning, it's simply this. We rejoice in the riches of the gospel of God because God has solved our entire problem, our guilt problem and our corruption problem in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are freed from the first Adam to follow the superior Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it should cause us to rejoice all the more in what Christ has done. When we come back next time, we will see the proof of this corruption, the proof of this problem in the spread of sin and the reign of death from Adam until Moses. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this tax. Thank you for the riches of it. And just pray as we are meditating on these things and thinking richly and deeply about your work that, again, we are comforted by where your text goes, comforted by what you reveal. But we do not want to go further than what you have said and stay simply within the lanes of what has been revealed. And may the understanding of these truths and the understanding of these ideas cause us to have greater appreciation for the person and work of Jesus Christ. For indeed, we could not even spare ourselves from the guilt problem, could not deliver ourselves from the guilt that we have that is ours, let alone the corruption problem. We needed a new life. We needed spiritual life. Thank you for redeeming us. And ultimately, we look forward to the the final problem, the removing of this corruption, this body of flesh, when we will receive our heavenly bodies. So when we fully anticipate all the riches of your work and salvation, may we appreciate every element and aspect of it so we truly are thankful from the resources of our heart for all that you've done for us. Thank you for this truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.